Amen. Why don't you just take that with you? Okay. Well, keep your Bible out. We're going to work our way through this passage this morning. Have y'all been watching basketball? Yeah? Everybody loves a Cinderella story. And that's what they call the bracket-busting success of small schools and the NCAA basketball tournament called March Madness. It's going on right now. Thursday night, there was one of these Cinderella story upsets. Um, the St. Peter's College Peacocks, number 15 seed, yeah, knocked off the number two seed Kentucky Wildcats in a, in a packed arena. They were like two and a half hours outside of Lexington, and so it was basically a hometown crowd for the Wildcats, big blue, and uh, they got upset and people love that. I forget how many percentages of the brackets filled out at ESPN, you know, were basically tanked at that point. Nobody had the Peacocks beating the Wildcats, but hey, stranger things happen. But that's, that is, that's what happened, an upset. And our passage has a pretty surprising upset in it. It's a little strange. I mean, if you've been around here, you know, we've been working our way through Mark's gospel and we've been seeing one dramatic success after another. Jesus has been preaching with authority. He's been casting out demons, uh, calming raging seas and all that. And all of a sudden, when we least expect it, he rolls into his hometown and all that success comes to a screeching halt. He was unable to perform many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It's strange. Out of nowhere, Jesus arrives in his hometown where he should have the home court advantage, you know, and his distant relatives family, friends, and old acquaintances reject him. And it makes you wonder, why would the people most familiar with Jesus respond to him in that way? Why would they prove faithless and turn against him? Well, as we work our way through the passage this morning, I, I think you probably already get it. Me and John did not coordinate, but the passage is pretty straightforward, and I think you already see that the problem for the Nazarenes was that they were familiar with Jesus, but they were faithless. They had no faith in who he was or what he claimed to do. And because of that, that's my point this morning. I want you to think about that long and hard with me, what it means to be familiar but faithless. Because if we want to get in on God's kingdom blessings, if we want to know what it means to live the abundant life that Jesus promises, then we got to go beyond being familiar with Jesus. We have to believe in him. And so we're going to work our way through this passage, and hopefully if I do my job right, you'll agree with me. That that's what we've got to do. So Jesus rolls into Nazareth, his hometown. Up to this point, he has focused his ministry almost entirely on the towns and villages on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And from his home base in Capernaum, y'all remember, he's gone out to the villages, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, casting out demons, healing the sick, and uh, just showing himself to be the one who brings the kingdom of God near to the broken. Along the way, crowds have followed him because they want to get in on that kingdom life that he's promising. But at the same time, the religious leaders have turned against him. From among the crowds, he hand-selects 12 men that he's going to use to multiply his ministry. And he sets about this training program where they observe his interactions with the people and absorb all his teaching. And next week, we're going to actually see him send them out two by two to preach and have authority over demons. But before he can do that, there's one more lesson he's got to teach them. And it's this lesson in rejection. 
Mark tells us they visit his hometown. He doesn't name it Nazareth here, but back in Mark 1.9, it says that Jesus was raised in Nazareth. He came out of Nazareth and began preaching. It's a village of less than 500 people, 25 miles south of Capernaum in the hill country of southern Galilee. Um, modern excavations tell us that it's a, it's a little know-nothing place. In fact, it's not mentioned outside of Scripture anywhere except by the, the earliest references in the 2nd century A.D. Somebody talks about it with reference to Jesus' birthplace. I mean, not birthplace, but hometown. In Jesus' day, it was considered backwater and insignificant, so that even one of his disciples asked the question in Mark 1, uh, John 1, can any good thing come from Nazareth? But it was Jesus' home. And so after he conducts this season of busy ministry, he decides it's time to head back for a visit. And you, you can imagine, I don't know if y'all have gone home anytime lately, maybe this is home. <laughs> maybe this is your hometown. And uh, I just love Becky's face over there. It's like, oh, God, oh, God. It happens. Our doors are in the worst place in our sanctuary. So, you know, we get to see everybody coming in and exiting. It is what it is. But, you know, you go home and you expect that when you roll into the driveway, that the family's going to come out and greet you with open arms. Oh, we're, we're so glad you've made it back. We've been looking forward to this day. It's like today. It's like a, a homecoming at church or something. Except when Jesus gets to Nazareth, the people don't run out and greet him as the famous son of the village, you know, and cheer him on. They have open hostility towards him. You know, they, they reject him. And it's just strange. You start to wonder, where does this open hostility come from? And Mark records it for us in these questions, you know, which are not the, the genuine search for answers. They're accusatory. They're, they reveal people who've already drawn conclusions about Jesus. Look at verses 2 and 3 and again. Mark says, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? I like the way John was reading that. You could almost hear the snark in the question. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. I mean, where did the hostility come from? Well, it's obvious. The people of Nazareth recognized some wisdom in the things Jesus was teaching. But Mark tells us in verse 3, they took offense at him. This phrase translates a Greek word, scandalane, that used eight times throughout Mark's Gospels. We get our English word scandalize from it. Most of the time it's translated to cause someone to stumble or to fall away. And usually it's used to talk about people's experience of salvation. They, they stumble, they fall away, or their entrance into the kingdom. But here it indicates the effect that Jesus' ministry has on the people in the synagogue. The New Living Translation brings this out in verse 3. It says, they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. They got their feathers ruffled by what Jesus was saying. I like the way one commentator put it. He said they were put off by Jesus. It's like what my Mimi says. They looked at this Jesus, the carpenter and the son of Mary, and they decided this guy's gotten too big for his britches. 
Y'all ever have anybody say that? That's, that's, their, that's their thing. Who is this guy that says he's, that he's come in here teaching us like this? They questioned, first of all, the source of his teaching and miracles. Where did this man get these things? They're like the scribes who came up from Jerusalem in Mark chapter 3, you know, who saw the supernatural at work in Jesus, but came to the conclusion that he was possessed by a demon and doing Satan's work. You know, at least his family didn't tell him that. Instead, they just sort of openly questioned things. Now, where, where, where is he getting this from? They stopped short of acknowledging that the wisdom he possessed came from God, which is surprising to me because you and I know that wisdom comes from God. That's its, its source. If you want to know how to dissect the events of the world and see things clearly in life, you've got to ask God who gives wisdom to all without reproach. So they had to have known that. They surely knew the prophet Isaiah who said, letting the passage Mike read for us, that when the Messiah came, he'd come with a spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and fear of Yahweh. And if you compare Luke's account, which I want you to do with me, turn over to Luke chapter 4, because Luke actually tells us what things he was saying. It says that Jesus came into the synagogue in Nazareth and he was selected to read and offer a word of encouragement to the people. And in verse 17, it says that the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. This is Luke 4, 17. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and all the eyes of those in the synagogue were fixed on him. And, when he, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Of course they knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. He said it. Where did he get the wisdom? Well, clearly, this guy is claiming to be the one anointed by God with the spirit of wisdom and understanding. There's no, uh, you know, no vagary here. They can see right through it. Jesus says, I am the man who's come in the spirit of the Lord. But when they looked at him, all they saw was the carpenter, not the Messiah. And that's the second thing they took issue with. They questioned his occupation. Is this not the carpenter? Now, Jesus was well known to them for this reason. This uh, Greek word is tecton, and uh, it can be translated builder or carpenter. The tecton, the builder, the carpenter, was super essential in every first century village, especially one as small as Nazareth. He was tasked with building things from wood, and because wood was often scarce, uh, even stone. And it's likely that the people in Nazareth had visited his shop a time or two themselves and allowed him to maybe fix a stool that had broken or they were getting their plow worked on or something. Or maybe he'd been in their home delivering a table he'd made or propping up a sagging beam in their house. I don't know. They knew him. They knew about him. They knew that he was skilled with his hands, but they didn't know that he had insight into the things of God and Scripture. They knew he had an apprentice to a rabbi, and they weren't about to take unsolicited religious advice or insight into the things of God from a carpenter. Is this not the carpenter? He's an untrained amateur offering insight into the scripture that's clearly beyond his expertise. 
So they questioned his occupation. But third, they questioned his family background. And they gave voice to the whispered rumors that must have been floating around his hometown for 30 years. Is this not the son of Mary? And some people see this question as an indication that Joseph, Mary's husband, and Jesus' supposed father had passed away. And maybe that's the case. Maybe that's what we're supposed to take from it. But Robert France says that it's highly unusual for a Jewish man to be described as the son of his mother, even when she's a widow, except as an insult. Jewish men were normally called sons of their father. So like Jesus looks at Simon in the face later and he'll say, Simon bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. Uh, They addressed each other as the son of their father, never as the son of their mother, unless it was an insult. And apparently the unusual circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth had raised certain questions about his legitimacy and whether he was who he claimed to be or not. How could a man with that kind of background, born into that kind of circumstances, be trusted in his interpretation of the law? Is this not the son of Mary? Not only that, but take a look at his brothers and sisters, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and the sisters who are here with us. There's nothing special about these people. They're one of us. They live down the street from us. They've married into our family. His sister married my second cousin twice removed. These people are nothing special. They're just normal people like us. And so when the people of Nazareth heard Jesus' teaching and examined his miracles, they saw clear evidence of God's work in him, but they filtered it all through their preconceived notions, their small-town petty prejudices about him. His powerful authority didn't fit who they knew he was. And as a result, while they were familiar with him, there was no faith in him as the Son of God. I wonder what images or ideas do you have about Jesus? Here he is, the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Simon. And I think about the the mental pictures I have of Jesus in my head. I'm sure I picked up in Sunday school somewhere, flannel graphs, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. Okay, so when I think of Jesus, that's who I see. I know he's a first-century man from the Middle East. He didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. He had brown skin and dark hair, and I'm good with that. Then you think, okay, go a little beyond that, and the personality of Jesus. Jesus was meek and mild, right? And then you start to take a look at how he presents himself in the gospel, and maybe not everything fits into that neat little category, and when you see him taking time out of his day to fashion a, a whip of cords and then go into the temple and whip them and turn over their tables, you have to reassess. Think about Jesus as a little something extra, the cherry on top, the sprinkles that add spice to life and not the one who calls us to die to ourselves to follow him. Those are the preconceptions that you and I are likely to deal with. And while the response of the people may surprise us, If we're honest with ourselves, we're often like them. Taking Jesus and fitting him into our neat little boxes and categories rather than just dealing with him as he is. But it wasn't surprising to Jesus. He says that it's normal, the familiar pattern of rejection that he even expected. With his characteristic wit, he explains it in the aphorism, no prophet is without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Just puts a fine point on it. 
These three concentric circles, he, he thinks about all the people in his life who think they know him. His hometown, the big metropolis of Nazareth, the 500 people or so who saw him in his diaper chasing Mary down the street, who taught him in Sunday school at the local synagogue and helped him learn his letters. Right, these people who know Jesus, his hometown, they, how are they going to take a, him seriously? They've changed his diaper, you know? That's, what I, that's how I think about it. Then his distant relatives, his, his, his relatives. Think about all the people who are with him at Thanksgiving dinner and his cousins who are running around the house. How are they going to listen to this guy as if he's speaking God's word to them? They wrestled and pinned each other to the ground. He's just one of them. His own mom and brothers and sisters who had to come down to Capernaum because they thought he was out of his mind. I mean, every one of these people, like John said, experienced that familiarity that didn't open them up to accepting the truth about him. They bred contempt for him. The closer they were, the less likely they were to listen to him. Had they had no background knowledge of Jesus, they could have been free to just take the evidence they saw and accept it for what it was. Here's a man with wisdom, and where does wisdom come from? It comes from God. And since Jesus is speaking wisdom from God, we should listen to him. But this is my distant cousin. This is my relative. This is the guy who grew up down the street from me. This can't be a guy who speaks on God's behalf. As it was, they couldn't get past all they thought they knew about him to get to the real truth, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's something you and I need to think carefully about. Because left unchecked, the familiarity that you and I have, the familiarity that they had, the familiarity with the things of God can lead to a superficial knowledge that in the end will undermine our faith. Why don't you think about that? Familiarity brings a superficial knowledge that left unchecked can undermine faith. The Nazarenes rejected the good news Jesus proclaimed because it didn't fit with what they thought they knew about him. In the same way, our, talking about me and you, people who show up to church on a Sunday morning, our long-term repeated exposure to Scripture and the gospel can convince us we already know everything we need to know about God. Yeah, 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 I've heard that before. I was thinking about that this week. Do you know the verse John 3.16? Can we say it out loud together? Okay, one, two, three. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Great. Now, we talked about this verse in detail Wednesday night in our Fresh Start Bible study. And it was a really, really good time. We, we had a great time talking through it, thinking about it together. And as I was preparing to teach it, a few things jumped out. First off, this verse is Jesus' explanation of how a person can come to share in the eternal life he came to bring by believing in him. Number two, I got to thinking about when I must have memorized that verse. I memorized it in the King James Version like some of y'all. Whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Um, so I, I think it had to have been the second or third grade. When did you all memorize it? You remember? Can you remember the Sunday school teacher or the parent who helped you to store that one in your heart? Right? 
It's a valuable discipline. If you're not in the habit of memorizing Scripture, psalmist prays um, that we would hide our word in God's heart so that we might not sin against him. It's good to do, but one of the challenges of that is that it is as easy for me to recite John 3.16 as it is for me to recite the Pledge of Allegiance and my Social Security number. I don't have to think about it too much. It just sort of comes out. After 30 years of having it in my head, it just works. And that level of familiarity has inoculated me to the life-changing truth that that verse teaches. I read through the Gospel of John, and I get to John 3, yeah, 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 Jesus with Nicodemus, and I just kind of run through it real quick. I know all this already. But it hasn't changed since I first learned it. It's still as beautiful and life-changing as the first time you heard it, too. The difference is that you're more familiar with it now. And so it doesn't have the same effect on us as it once did. Because of that, I'm a little envious of those of you who are first discovering what it means to follow Jesus. And I wish I could go back to when I opened up the scriptures and everything I read was brand new. I wish I didn't have this familiarity, years of junk piled on top of things, creating a barrier between me and Jesus. I'm envious of you. It's like moving to a new town or visiting a new place. You, you pull out your phone and you pull out the Google Maps. You look at all the restaurants that are near you. Say, hey, what are you all in the mood for? We got lots of options. And you go through and you pick it out. And over time, you start to find your favorite places. You start to choose the restaurants you like. You visit all the places of local interest, all the parks, all the events. And over time, those things that were totally new to you sort of become routine, and you start complaining. Say, oh, we always eat there. Let's go somewhere different, you know? And, and the, the routes that you used to have to look up on your phone to map out your directions, those are just easy for you. you. You know all the shortcuts. You know how to cut through here to there and make a, you know, a quick trip out of it. What once was new and fresh is totally routine, and you slip into the rut. So bad that, have you ever had that experience where you're headed home from work or you're headed home from HEB or something, and uh, you get in your car, and you start it up, and you take your first turn, and all of a sudden, you zone out. And you just you drive mindlessly. The next thing you know, you're pulling into your driveway, and you snap out of it. How did I get here? And what you've done is you've retraced the steps you've taken a million times before, so much so that it's routine and sort of ingrained into who you are. You don't even have to think about it anymore. You just make it home. I'm worried that a lot of Christians live their life with Christ that way. They've done all this before. They know all the right turns to take. They don't even have to think about it. They just zone out and go through the motions, and the next thing they know, they're right where they are. You know, they're familiar with him. People who are familiar with Christ mistake Bible knowledge with spiritual maturity. Think because you know all the answers in Sunday school class that you've grown to be the person God wants you to be. They think that going to church is all that God expects of them. It's full throttle Christianity. People who are familiar with Christ think being on a membership role at some church somewhere means that you're guaranteed a spot in heaven or something. And the Great Commission says going to all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to know everything I've commanded you. When really Christ's call is to a life of radical obedience, not going through the motions. And perhaps worst of all, they lose the sense of wonder 
that God would love them so much in their sin that he would send his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the danger of familiarity. And if you want to personally experience the blessing of God's kingdom made real in Jesus, it's not enough to be familiar. You have to believe in him. And we see proof of that right here in the story. After Jesus tells the people their rejection of him is unsurprising and pretty characteristic of the way people always treat prophets, Mark tells us that he could do no miracle there, this is verse 6, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he wondered at their unbelief. The dramatic miracles that Jesus has done already in Mark's gospel, like raising up the little girl from the dead and setting free the man possessed by thousands of demons and calming the regency. None of that stuff was possible in a place like Nazareth because the people lacked faith. But I love this, that there were apparently some people who did believe. There were some people who possessed a genuine faith that looked to them for healing. The kind of desperate faith we saw last week that, that saw Jesus as his only hope, that refused to get discouraged and finally got an answer. Some people who saw what Jesus was doing and heard his teaching, and despite what everybody else said, they were going to go to him because they believed he was able to heal them. They pressed through the familiarity to take hold of him with faith. I love this because it shows us that Jesus never paints with a broad brush. He doesn't do what he tells his disciples to do next week. He doesn't shake the dust off his feet and go on to the next village consigning all these sick people who believe to a hopeless existence. Instead, he deals with people one-on-one. The Apostle John saw this too in his prelude to his gospel. He says, when the word became flesh, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. That's John 1.11. And he came to his own family, and they thought he was crazy. Mark says in Mark 3.21, his people came thinking that he was out of his mind. He came to his hometown, and they were deeply offended by him. He even came to the Jewish nation. You know, you think about the people of Israel who had waited for a Messiah, and here the Messiah came, endowed with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the one who was going to set free those who were oppressed, going to open the eyes of the blind, proclaim the year of God's favor, and he did everything God had sent him to do, lived a sinless life, perfectly fulfilling the law of God, offered himself as a sacrifice for sins on the cross, and three days later was raised again. None of that broke through. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. In fact, they yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. But John says in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And here he is, proving it on a small level in his hometown. Listen, you can sit in church week after week, getting more and more familiar with the truth about Jesus and never experiencing the life-changing power of the gospel. Because genuine faith, not familiarity, is what brings about the blessings of God's kingdom. It's what Jesus preached in Mark 1. The time's fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. This is the essence of Christianity. It's the essence of faith in God. And it's the one thing the Nazarenes lacked. 
Rather than assessing Jesus on his own terms and really taking account of the miracles he was performing and the things he was saying, they filtered it through what they thought they knew about him. And instead of taking hold of him in faith, they rejected him. And we are always in danger of doing the same thing. The scriptures actually repeatedly warn Christians to assess themselves, to to take stock of where they are. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The author of the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews warned it a little more strongly. He says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I think the reason these kind of warnings are necessary, and the reason I'm warning y'all in what I thought was going to be a pretty strongly worded sermon, and I've been praying over it, that it would, that it would hit you right, not between the eyes, but right in the heart, okay? That this is the danger. The longer we walk with Christ, the more familiar we become with the things of God, and the more likely we are to grow cold in our faith and slip into an unfeeling and routine Christian life. It's just the way it is. The more you know, and the longer you live with it, the more dangerous it becomes that it will have no effect in your heart. But you know our familiarity with Jesus can't save us. And that our attendance at church and Sunday school can't save us. Our knowledge of the Bible can't save us. Only Jesus can save us. And he only saves by grace through faith. It's like this. I was thinking about this this morning. You know, I love sports, but you'll have to forgive me. I spoke earlier about things that I'm totally ignorant of. I don't watch basketball. It's just never one of the sports I got into. And I can't even remember the last time I took a free throw, but I can guarantee you I missed it, okay? <laughs> and, and maybe that explains why I'm not into basketball. But I could go online today to SeatGeek, and I could buy a court-level seat for a San Antonio Spurs game. And I could go online and I could buy a replica jersey and shorts. And I go to Foot Locker and buy me some shoes. And I could go to the game and get real up close in on the action. And if you're watching on TV, you're like, hey, who's that guy with the mustache? When did they add him to the team? You know? But hey, I'm close to the action and I look the part, but I am not a basketball player. Maybe some Christians are like that. They're close to the action. They look the part, but they're not the real thing. They're familiar with it. They've got all the right answers, but really they're not trusting Christ. They're just going through the motions. Don't be one of them. Today, commit yourself to really living a life of personal daily trust and surrender in Jesus. Commit to cultivating faith by refusing to let the good news get old. Assess your life in light of scripture and ask Jesus humbly, am I living the life you've called me to live or am I going through the motions? Chances are, you know the answer to that question already. You know whether you're living the kind of life that Jesus calls us to live. You know whether or not you're living in trust and surrendered obedience to him. And you know when you're going through the motions. We've all been there. We've all done it. 
But if you want to personally experience the blessings of God's kingdom made real in Jesus, you've got to go beyond familiarity. You have to have faith and trust in who he is. This morning, I want to challenge you to think with me about that. Will you bow your head? I want to ask you a couple of questions. This morning, we've seen how deadly familiarity can be for living the life of faith that Jesus has called his people to live. And I know that not everybody is familiar with Jesus. And that this morning, maybe you've discovered some things about him that you've never known before. Maybe you didn't know that Jesus did miracles. And maybe you didn't know that his hometown rejected him. But they did. In fact, like rejection was the story of Jesus' life. He came on behalf of God, sent from the Father to live a sinless life and die on the cross for sinners. And three days later, God raised him from the dead. And he did all of that, suffered rejection and crucifixion, so that anybody who trusts in him, who believes in him, could be saved from the penalty of their sin and have eternal life in his kingdom forever. And Maybe you never heard that before. Maybe this is totally fresh and brand new. Familiarity, not at all. And if this morning you like to trust him, you believe, unlike the people in Nazareth, that he is who he says he is, would you just raise your hand as an expression of that commitment today? Amen. Amen. Maybe nothing in the sermon today has been new to you. Maybe you heard the gospel a thousand times. And over the years, it's become familiar. It's a routine. Even though you know all the right answers, you're not living the life of trust that Jesus has called you to. Has the Spirit of God convicted you this morning of that? Do you know in your heart that you've been going through the motions and you know that you haven't been following Christ as a disciple? I wonder, what if you could strip away all that familiarity and get back to who Jesus really says he is? Would you take it? And I believe he would give it to you. I believe if today you said a prayer or something like this, Jesus, I want to start over in my walk with you. I've let my faith become routine, and I want you to be real to me again. And I believe he would answer that prayer. Jesus, I want to start over in my walk with you. I've let my faith become routine. I want you to be real to me again. Did you pray that prayer? If you did, I've been praying for you this week. I believe you're not here by accident. I think God brought you here today to be challenged with this truth. I wonder, would you let me know it by raising your hand? Yeah. Wow. Amen. Amen.
God, we thank you so much. That as familiar as we are, by your spirit, you still bring Jesus to us fresh. God, I thank you this morning for those who made commitments in their heart, and I thank you especially for those on the ground floor and in the balcony who raised their hands. God, you know the commitment they've made in their heart. God, I pray for them, that you'd give each one of them courage and boldness. That the commitment they've made here in a quiet moment would be lived loud in their life. That they would unashamedly tell their friends and families about what you're doing in them. About the commitment they've made to go back to the start with you. Not to settle for familiarity, the same old, same old, but to start fresh. I pray when they open the Bible that it would be as new to them as it's ever been that they couldn't read it fast enough because of what they sense you teaching them through it. I pray that the joy they get from fellowship with your people and worshiping you in church would stir them up. That the exhortation to pursue you every day, as long as it's called today, would ring in their ears. And as they begin again with Jesus, that they would bring others with them. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you so much for the life you lived, the miracles you perform, the teaching you give us, and the way you've called us to live for you. We pray that you would continue your work in our service this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.